Today is the sixth day of our spring seven-day session, 7th of September 2023, and we're going to continue reading from and commenting on Throw Yourself into the House of Buddha, the life and ten teachings of Tangan Harada Roshi, translated by Belinda Attaway Yamakawa and edited by Kogan Sarsnik. first chapter we're going to look at is called Impermanence. And it starts off with a, a poem. The heart believes in tomorrow's cherry blossoms. The storm comes at night and blows them away. This is a poem composed by Shinran Shonen. And Shinran states are 1173 to 1263. So he was, he was born well before Master Dogen and died after him. He lived to the age of 90. Uh, but Dogen's whole life is contained within his uh, 1200 to 1253. So Dogen had a very short life uh, relatively, dying at the age of 53. So they, they were contemporaries. Shinran Shonen was the founder of uh, Jodo Shinshu. There's a, there's a footnote about this tradition, this, this branch of Buddhism. Jodo Shinshu, also known as Shin Buddhism or True Pure Land Buddhism, is one of the sects of Japanese Pure Land Buddhism and is the most widely practiced branch of Buddhism in contemporary Japan, focusing on uh, putting one's trust in Amitabha Buddha and his vow to save sentient beings. Chanting Namu Amida Butsu. But this is all happening well before um, Shinran founded Jodo Shinshu. This... this um, verse was one he, he recited at the age of 13 or so, I'm sorry, 9. And Tangin relates, when he was a young boy, both his parents died. And the connection there with, with Master Dogen. Feeling urgency to understand the great matter of life and death, at 9, Shinran went to Shorin in, in Kyoto, he arrived at the temple somewhat late, perhaps in the evening, and asked the head priest, Jian, to ordain him as a monk. When Jian told him that he would ordain him the next day, Shinran replied, The heart believes in tomorrow's cherry blossoms. The storm comes at night and blows them away. We have our own uh, ornamental cherry out in front of the uh, dining hall, which um, is coming to an end, it's blossoms blown away. Hearing his urgency, Jian followed his request the same night. He responded to that sense of urgency in the, this young boy who came to him. It is necessary to have 
for a, pra- for a practitioner to have a persistent sense of impermanence, not just intellectually, but a felt sense of it. We cannot be carefree. There's no time to waste. Very often we spend our time in a leisurely way, as if we were going to live forever, thinking that there won't be anything to worry about tomorrow. Even if we don't consciously think that way, in some place deeper than conscious thought, we carry this conviction. Rarely do people live with the mindset of there is no tomorrow. In the sense of being able to rely on it. Of course, we, we're burning up the planet with a different kind of sense of no tomorrow and a lack of... Um, awareness of consequences, but that's not what um, Tangan is talking about here when he says there is no tomorrow. We can't rely on things turning out as we want. This is the main point here. Most people experience a lot of suffering in their lives. But the people in this world Read that again. Most people experience a lot of suffering in their lives, but there are people in this world able to live somewhat calm, trouble-free, happy lives. Even for such people, will will there always be serenity? Will there always be this calm happiness? Certainly not. Worry, anxiety and trouble take so many forms and wear so many faces. Suffering can leap out at you in so many ways. Um, The rich, for example, um, worry about losing their wealth. Or or there's so many examples we could give. Um, The ways in which we... We believe in tomorrow's cherry blossoms, you could say. For instance, we, we imagine our happy retirement with our spouse, and that spouse dies. Or one of the two of the partnership, the marriage, gets sick. Or we make certain financial calculations based on on our income and our savings and we're made redundant or we lose all the money in a a financial crisis. Or we put all our energies into building a beautiful house and one day it slides down a cliff. So you can all put in your own examples here. He says, one woman I know had a life that had been smooth and joyful, a perfect example of the heavenly realm. She was the mother of three sons, each of whom had always been kind, considerate and bright. She was close to them. Each was accomplished in his field. They were all doctors or university professors. And while she had no daughters, she was blessed with three daughters-in-law she got along with well all warm, kind, and considerate people. 
these various families seemed to be so content with their lives. This woman was very healthy and living a life that others might envy. She herself could see that she had been so blessed. She was a person many others would approach when they had problems. But one day she told me in tears that suddenly, without any explanation or any farewell note, her oldest son had left his house and gone missing. It just disappeared. She experienced anguish so intense that it didn't allow her to sleep, and her time awake was pure suffering. No matter how she thought about it or how she looked at it, she couldn't figure out what was going on. I couldn't help but feel deep, deep sympathy. From heaven, she fell straight to the bottomless suffering of hell. So even though people are blessed and joyous, it doesn't mean that they necessarily have true peace of mind. Not deeply, not unconditionally. And and when when there is a fall like this from from uh, virtual heavenly realm into suffering, it's so so acute. The contrast makes it even more painful. The longing to return to that state can be so powerful and so painful. The part believes in tomorrow's cherry blossoms. The storm comes at night and blows them away. By the front gate at this temple, there are many gravestones piled high in the shape of a mountain. People usually call them the graves of people who have no relations. Of course, the expression is erroneous because there's not a single person and no single thing without relations. We are so incredibly related in every way. But this stupa was erected from the many graves of people whose families had all died out a long time ago. In other words, the families weren't still coming to look after the grave. So they, they collected all these ones with no um, living uh, relatives and put them all into this, this stupa, which they called the stupa of all, all spirits. On the path to the graveyard, there is a rather large stone, just my height. On its side is a written request asking everyone who comes to see their ancestors' graves to bow first to the stupa of all spirits. On the front of this stone, these words are carved. We were once just as you are now. Those upon whose graves you now look at were in the past just exactly like you, healthy, full of happiness, enjoying their lives. A young, joyful-looking couple arriving to pay tribute to their ancestors can read these words. Then there is a second line that reads, you will become just as we are now. Impermanence is swift, this is the reality. No matter how blessed you are now, how easygoing, how worry-free and happy, you cannot keep the situation. It will be taken away from you. Impermanence is swift. You have to resolve the problem of life and death for yourself, and no one can do it for you. You might think this... this um, 
teaching is, is a gloomy one. But it's realistic. We don't know when our circumstances can change. And we, only, we can only really be sure of the fact that they will, one way or another. He continues. Everything is impermanent. Change is constant. It waits for no one. You don't even have the time to sit around and lament impermanence, to think of it as a concept, to dwell on it. There is no time to dwell on anything. There is a constant sermon of change. Truth is being revealed completely. A constant sermon of change. When we sit in the, in the zendo and hear the sound of the rain, what an, an, a stupendous taisho on change that is. The water falling and flowing, gurgling in the drains and the pattering on the paths. Truth is being revealed completely. It is always laid out, uh, laid out for us, undisguised, right here and now. Always and ultimately, life is fresh and new. Always and ultimately, this true life is revealed. Life is not a solid, fixed thing. It, it, there is no self in it. The fact, this reality, has to be pounded in until we know it in our guts, until it is a persistent sense. No matter how carefully you try to hold on to something, no matter how carefully you try to make this life last, you are going to lose it. One way of, of um, t speaking about the, the totality of, of a human being is uh, as the five skandhas, which we we don't need to go into here, but they're really a way of looking at um, mind and matter uh, that makes up our, uh, our being. Um, the, the skanda means heap, and so these, these, it's five collections of things which uh, make up a human being for, for mind and, and one matter form. But one of the ways that these five skandhas are referred to do in, in Vajrayana Buddhism is as the perishing collection. That's what we are. A perishing collection. That's what our loved ones are too. The heart believes in tomorrow's cherry blossoms. The storm comes at night and blows them away. The only thing then for you to do is to seek that which cannot be taken away, that which cannot be lost. The only thing for you to do is see clearly that which you can utterly and absolutely rely on, no matter how the winds blow. 
What I am telling you right now is meet with it. In fact, you are now living it. This most precious thing is right here under your feet. When you meet with it, you know that there is no dying, that there is no that that which cannot be lost or destroyed is your original life. You cannot rely on somebody else to live it for you. You have to work walk it with your own steps. Morning turns into noon, noon into evening, evening into night. There is continual birth and death. This truth cannot be taken away. It goes nowhere. Everything is just all right. Everything is just Buddha nature, Buddha life. Everything is just all right. To know that, to know it in our bones, to know it through and through, not just some thing some Buddhist guy said. Buddha simply means awakened one, the one awakened to truth. When you awaken to truth, even should Shakyamuni appear to take this away from you, it cannot be taken away because you are one and the same as Shakyamuni Buddha. It's your reality, the reality of every single one of you. If you don't awaken to this, then you will continue through a never-ending cycle of lifetimes. But you are not really living. You must abandon the heart that believes in the cherry blossoms of tomorrow, the heart that takes it for granted that you will have tomorrow to practice and attain liberation. Next section is uh, headed Samadhi. In the beginning, it seems that there is self-will. There is a me doing this practice. I am practicing. This is my aim. This is my own effort, my own practice. You, you append this I to everything you are doing. The notion that I am carries with it delusion, division, and separation. It carries these these negative qualities, and yet we we don't let go of it. Because we we invest so much in in the sense of permanence solidity but mysteriously along the way what seems to be your self-will practicing comes to be practice practicing itself when you are really practicing you become one with what you're doing there is no room for I, me, or mine to show its face. This is forgetting body and mind, becoming one with your practice until your practice is all there is. This happens naturally, growing out of your steady, continuous effort. 
The personal will becomes the will of the Dharma. What you first regard as your own effort, your effort as this human being, becomes unconditional Dharma at work. There's a lot in this uh, which we need to understand if we're doing this practice. One is that you, you can't manufacture samadhi. It's, it happens, and it happens when this, this forgetting of the self happens. When, when we get so involved in the practice that the, the self just, there's no place for it anymore. So to, to trust this, and when we take up the practice, this is the faith we need to practice, is trust in the process, this process of becoming one with. Then the, the, the self drops out of the, the picture. Our self-partiality is not active anymore. Before I even knew anything about Zazen or practice, I had a glimpse of this. During World War II, we were required to strengthen our bodies and our willpower. We were told that if the youth of our country weren't strong, then we, shouldn't be able to we wouldn't be able to protect our country. So at school, rather than learn theoretical subjects, the emphasis was on strengthening body and mind. The teachers were very strict at this time, driving us to run faster and farther each day. I was quite affected by something I had read in a Chinese classic and he chanted this in my belly wholeheartedly before and as I ran. It doesn't say what it was he was chanting, but um, it's obviously something that was very meaningful to him. One time, it brought about a great power. This, this is the chanting he's doing it in his, in his tanden. Greater than the self-will I felt I had. All of us boys who were running were at about the same level of fitness. But this day, my running was different from, that, from what it had ever been before. First, it was painful, but soon the pain was forgotten, and through some strange power, I was sped along. After about four kilometers or so, the body was lost, forgotten. It was like riding a wind, not running on legs. I zoomed in well ahead of everyone else, without any bit of pain or fatigue. There was not any feeling of having forced myself to do anything. When the others came in, they were drenched in sweat and puffing. It was not my usual way of making that run. It was a running samadhi a samadhi power, so I remember that experience well. There's um, a Japanese teacher of the middle of last century, um, uh, Sekida Roshi, and he would talk about um, relative samadhi and absolute samadhi. Relative samadhi is what um, Tangan is describing here when we become so united with an activity that um, we forget ourselves. Whereas absolute samadhi is, is when we um, 
completely are united with with nothing. Shunyata. In the beginning, practice seems to be a matter of personal will, but along the way, it clearly becomes the will of the Dharma. There are limits to your own personal will. From the outside, you decide how much you can do, how far you can go, how much strength you have, and you restrict yourself. And in restricting yourself, you start out in your practice already defeated, even while you are practicing something that is unrestricted and limitless. The real way to start in practice is by dropping off body and mind. This is um, the expression that Master Dogen's teacher, Ru Jing, uh, Chinese master, he, those are the, his words, um, drop, drop off body and mind, that, that prompted Master Dogen's awakening, great awakening. The real way to start in practice is by dropping off body and mind. Let go from the beginning. Of course your mind will still try to haggle and struggle, and it will still be painful physically. Running and zazen are the same in that way. Cast off body and mind. Forget about them. Throw yourself into the house of Buddha, and everything is done by Buddha. Then zazen simply does zazen. There is no controlling. Zazen simply does Zazen. Mu questions Mu. The breath breathes itself. On the cushion, in Zazen, we settle into this practice, become one with it, are permeated with it, off the cushion, we continue to practice while acting in accordance with the time, place, and circumstances, doing what there is to be done. Think about our, our work periods that we have. Just that's, that's our job, is to continue with the practice as we act in accordance with time, place, and circumstances, as we do the jobs that need to be done. Not judging or, or evaluating why you have one job and not another job, how the people are doing them, but just doing what needs to be done. This is practice. It always comes down to just becoming one with it. Now here. Now here. Naturally, we continue our practice. This is what we call samadhi. This samadhi, or this life functioning, is always working in everyone. Everyone is endowed with Buddha wisdom, Buddha virtue. Essential mind is essential oneness. In essential mind there is no separation of subject and object. This is samadhi. Throwing yourself wholly into one doing, you become this one doing. This truth comes to you in a flash. You can realize it suddenly for yourself. Isn't everything a flowering of samadhi? Isn't everything a flowering of samadhi? The floors are horizontal. 
the pillars are upright. The willow is green, the flower is red. The sun becomes the sun, the earth, the earth, the pillar, the pillar. When the rain falls, it's falling. When the wind blows, it's blowing. North, south, east, west, absolutely free. There's a, a little booklet in the story of the enlightenment of, of Flora Courtois. She's a young student in, in Michigan in the, in the 30s and had this powerful experience. But what triggered it was seeing the, the upright leg of a small desk in her bedroom. The leg of the desk in perfect samadhi. Whatever is revealed, that revelation is a revelation of itself, one with itself, clearly. The essence is simple, single. Everything is just one with itself. Be simple. Simply do your practice. There is nothing in excess, nothing lacking. Can you see this for yourself? The splendid brilliance of one truth is penetrating all of heaven and earth. The splendid brilliance of the true one truth is penetrating all of heaven and earth. Next chapter is, is headed Investigation. Human beings are thinking creatures, always thinking. We are free to think, but it creates in us this notion that this being who thinks is a solid and fixed me, separate from everything else. We get lost in discriminating thought, falsely perceiving something that does not exist. This perspective from which most people look is what we call delusion. It's easy to make the mistake of thinking, this is my body, I am here, I have a certain amount of knowledge, I have the habit of doing this and that, I have certain skills I can use to get things done. So that, that's the normal way we, we think. I'm over here, you're over there. I'm capable with in A, B, and C. I'm not good at A, D, G. We believe it. We hold on to it. And when we feel incomplete, and then we feel incomplete, estranged from something fundamental, to fill this void, we look outside for things we want, worldly things. We spend our whole life in pursuit of things that will not satisfy us, that will not solve this big problem. All suffering originates in the notion of a separate self. But when you do suffer, that is when you start to seek liberation from suffering, 
So all is well. It all leads to the truth. And here of um, something that Yasutani Roshi said. Intrinsically, there is no ego. It is something we ourselves create. Still, it is this self-centered ego that leads us to Zazen, so it is not to be despised. We, we can sometimes we can get into Buddhism and the, hear this teaching about, about ego, and we flip-flop into despising our ego, demonizing it. Sometimes thinking of, of our ego as, a, as Mara, who's a kind of the Buddhist jewel, can be useful from a, a sort of skillful means point of view. But uh, if we pour self-hate on ourselves because we have this ego, um, that's mistaken. Our, our ego is what got us here. Of course, once we get here, then we kind of need to leave it outside, out on the, on the threshold. But we can, we can be, really can be grateful for our suffering in, the, in that it, it takes us towards the Dharma. And it shows us the way in terms of where we hurt the most. In the beginning, we are absorbed in our ego self and we pay, fail to see our true nature. We feel happy and sad. We cry and we get angry. We think that there is a stable, steady, fixed master who is experiencing all of this. But it is not so. It is all a drama. We come out on stage and play our role. And when the drama is over, we change our clothes, take off our makeup drop all of that and return to the form of the actor outside the role. Sounds like um, he's agreeing here with Shakespeare. One way of looking at it is that we have been acting all our life since we were born. So who is acting? True nature. The ancient teacher had this to say, the moment there appeared that which I thought not to exist, that which I always thought to exist no longer was. Then he tells a little immediate story there about what happened right before he was due to give Taisho. He says, I thought that I would get something to drink. My throat was a little irritated, and I didn't want my, to subject my students to that voice. The kettle was full, and there beside it was a big cup. I started to pour from the kettle, and I found the cup was full of milk. Wow, somebody has left me a big cup of milk, I thought. I haven't had a cup of milk for several months. Wow, this is great, I thought to myself. I reached for it only to find it wasn't a cup of milk at all. It was a pure white saucer laid over the top of the cup to cover it. When I poured the tea in and it was immediately full, I came under the misapprehension that it was a big cup of milk. Mm. 
To be under the wrong impression, that's how most people live. They are under the wrong impression morning to night, night to morning. And before coming under the wrong impression, before misunderstanding, there is wrong seeing, not recognizing what is, taking one thing to be another. I'm a good example of that, mistaking a saucer for milk. That's why we have to investigate closely what is, to see through this wrong impression. I think mentioning it earlier in, in uh, Sesheen that um, the first aspect of the Eightfold Path is right view, starting to see that things are not exactly as they appear to be, starting to investigate, to look into the nature of reality. We have to unpick our wrong impressions get to the source of our suffering and others' suffering. Mindfully, we are taking a breath. What is the self that breathes this breath? Who is breathing this breath? Some of you will be attempted to answer, I'm breathing, and leave it at that. I? That I just takes things for granted. The swaggering I that is easily irritated when things don't go its way? When you go to bed at night, as you sleep, where is it, this I? Do you will yourself to breathe? Inhale now, okay, exhale now. No, of course not. Who is breathing? I am breathing. But who are you? Who is breathing this breath? This notion of I, what is it? What is behind this notion? If you can find it, please show me. You might say, well, there's this body here. Really? Isn't this in part the rice gruel from this morning? You cannot put that rice gruel aside and come here and say, well, this is me. If you look into it very closely, you find that you can put nothing aside and say, this is, this is me. Nothing can be put aside. We exist thanks to everything, independent with all things. Thich Nhat Hanh famously explained this by saying that um, a piece of paper is entirely made up of non-paper elements. A human being is entirely made up of non-human elements. We exist absolutely dependently, dependent on um, everything else in the universe for our existence. But so often we don't act out of that understanding. How do you answer when you are faced with this question about this I? Is this I big or little? Is it long or short? Where is this I when no thought arises? If you see clearly through this small notion of I and look from the perspective of true mind without the clouds of delusion, then your ability to think will be just one more shining facet of life. That's why all that is needed is for you to cut through discriminating thought. That is why you must investigate very carefully this notion of me. 
Your investigation is a form of one doing. This is this particular um, fertile word that that Tangan has has coined and appears again and again. One doing, only doing. This Zazen posture is the most settled, quiet posture for this investigation. But you can do it anywhere, anytime. Boil down your investigation to the most basic question in order to discover whether or not there is a self. What is truth? What is life? What am I? What is this? Mu, what is it? important to find the, the question that resonates the most for us. Reach the point where you ask this question, where you are no longer able to look away, to look out there to some other place for the answer. We st- stop doing that. That's, that's so full of promise when we, we no longer Um, Seeking happiness outside. Seeking satisfaction. Each person has some pain, some suffering that fuels their aim to solve this problem, which forces them to seek the answer. It's a fire burning inside. You have to solve this problem. Who is breathing this breath? Who or what or where is your sanctuary? your guardian, your truth. Truth is limitless, beyond duality, beyond inside and outside. You won't meet with truth or answer your question by searching restlessly, dualistically. You must become this breath. The fathomless fathomless universe is this one breath. And you can meet with the one who nurtures you. You can meet with the one who breathes this breath. Be like a fool, an idiot, a child, but even more of a child than a child. Roshi used to say to me, be a moo fool. Be one with the the simplicity of it. Investigate this one matter. If you continue this way without rest, your mind will suddenly become light, like a flash of light in the dark. Take a room that was dark for a hundred years, or a black cave dark for thousands of years, and light a candle. There, in an instant, the cave is enlightened. Wonderful indeed. then you are free. The notion of a separate me drops away in the letting go of body and mind. Free you move about in a samadhi of play, a samadhi of innocent delight. The samadhi of play, of innocent delight, is is a term that appears in Mumon's uh, commentary on the the, um, koan mu. 
to frolic and play in a samadhi of innocent delight. You are blended totally with whatever you encounter. When you reach this point for yourself, there is no more separation, just the genuine one using the discriminating function when needed. Anytime, anywhere you stride along, your arms swinging, you are leisure compo leisurely composed. You are moving in reverence, in worship of everything. The samadhi of play doesn't mean that you play in order to escape something. It doesn't mean that you are trying to satisfy your own notions of what you think would make you happy. It is pure play, blending as one with whatever you encounter. The genuine one is at play, yet taking full responsibility for the world, doing what needs to be done. In the Tao um, Te Ching, it talks of um, doing nothing and leaving nothing undone. We can, we can take these instructions to heart as we... Um, move into the, into the last uh, full day of the session to just drop everything and become intimately involved in the breath or in the koan or in the play, paying attention to this present moment. It's simple what we have to do and we can become simple, we can move away from our complicated, discriminating function and just be present with whatever arises. We can't control what, is, what arises, we can't control the, immediately the quality of our sitting. But when we can undertake to keep turning our attention to the practice. consistently, continuously, just coming back again and again and again, trusting in this process, this natural process of, of uh, thinking dropping away and samadhi blossoming. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. <laughs>